0: This week, we'll talk about identity resolution, and we we'll also will talk about building an open source startup. And we have a special guest today, Sonal. Sonal is the founder of Zinc, which is a machine learning powered identity resolution framework. And it is actually not the first time Sonal appears in Data Talks Club. At Data Talks Club, we have a thing called Open Source Spotlight, where we invite open source authors to demo their tools. And this is how Sonal and I got to know each other. And actually, her demo of Zinc is one of the most watched open source spotlight videos. So I thought it's a really good idea to invite Sonal to talk about open source, her startup, and large scale identity resolution. So welcome.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Alexi, for this. And I think uh, the video that we shot last time has was really beneficial for Zinc, and I hope people will enjoy today's talk as well.
0: I am pretty sure they will. So before we go into our main topic of open source and identity resolution, let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far?
1: So I had a real uh, long journey in uh, career, and all of it has been in tech. It was almost twenty-four years of uh, you know working on various aspects of technology. Started as a programmer and an analyst in an investment bank, and to here I am working on Zing had various roles, all technical, in different kinds of domains, like telecom, banking, and then uh, last couple of years, I was running a data consultancy, where we were solving all kinds of warehousing, uh, data pipelines, and machine learning problems.
0: And then uh, when you were running your consultancy, you probably noticed that there are some problems that most of your customers have, and this is how Zinc appeared, or how did it actually happen?
1: Yeah, very much. So honestly, I started my data consultancy in 2010, which was just, you know, the booming period, uh, the first time all this big data stuff was happening. And I have to be honest, I saw problems absolutely everywhere, you know, just setting up Hadoop clusters, installing Spark, getting them to run on EC2. What is S3? I think those were fundamental questions at that stage. And I remember in, back in 2010, 11, we were doing like something called cascading for ETL, which was a programmatic way for uh, to define ETL jobs. So there were a ton of problems. And Zing was something that definitely originated as part of the problems that I saw. It's a problem I saw well early in 2013. And uh, it's a problem that kind of flamogs me even at that time. But it's only now that I feel that base infrastructure for such a problem is ready and for the market to accept this problem. So here we are. Mm
0: -hmm. So it means that you don't need to figure out how to set up a Hadoop cluster, install Spark there. Uh, It's basically, uh, you go to your favorite cloud provider Click a button and then you have a Spark cluster. Well, at least this is how it happens with AWS, more or less. I have also experimented with Google Cloud Platform. It's pretty much similar, right? So now you're saying if uh, tools that are built on top of these tools now are, let's say it's easier to deploy them, to use them, right?
1: Yeah. So I think just beyond the tools for Spark, it is also about the data infrastructure as a whole, Mm -hmm. which is what we are now calling as like, we've been calling it as the modern data stack which is a very de facto piece of tools for established patterns, for extraction, for transformation, for loading, having set patterns in your warehouse or your data lake. So the data is essentially in one place. And when you have the data in one place, this is where the data management problems actually start appearing more and more. Because before that, you're actually bothered about your extraction, your pipelines, just running your flows, your observability. But the moment you have data in one place and you want to glean insights out of it, that's where problems like identity resolution actually like kind of just hit you in the face.
0: So can you tell us about Zinc, what is it?
1: So Zinc, um, as I was mentioning, it is identity resolution. It's a tool for identity resolution. And what I mean by identity is very simple. It is establishing whether five different records in your warehouse, actually refer to the same real world customer these records like when when we do etl and we connect to different data sources enterprises will have data coming in from different systems and they will have records of the customer from offline channels from online store from you know various kinds of interactions they've had surveys ticketing and what that leads to is lack of a core a well defined definition of really who that customer is So if you are counting five records as five different customer identities, your lifetime value, reporting, any other kind of personalization that we want to do, anti-money laundering, KYC, they all get affected. Now, this is just the customer, but when we talk about identity in a more generic sense, it is establishing exactly who are all those core things that the enterprise is dealing with. These could be customers, but they're also suppliers. They could be products. They could be B2B accounts. These could be locations. And establishing that single source of truth is essentially identity resolution.
0: Is there any difference between entity resolution and identity resolution?
1: So, identity resolution is used more in terms of the customer. But technically, I mean, they're the same concepts. But uh, when we talk about entity, entity is a broader term and it can refer to, you know, just any kind of noun. It can even be employees. It could be addresses or locations. It could be events. But when we talk about the customer per se or a person per se, I think I would say like a citizen or a healthcare provider, that is where people tend to use the term identity resolution more.
0: Mm -hmm. And uh, what about duplicate detection? How is it related, uh, the problem of detecting duplicates to this problem of entity resolution?
1: So duplicate detection is a subpart. I would say it's how you consume the results. So let's say we have five records with variations in the customer first name, last name, other details, date of birth. Let's say, and uh, you know, say that they, they belong to the same cas- the same individual. So that is resolving and saying identity. But now. What do we do with this result? Do we create one single record and do we remove the other ones and we purge out the other ones? That would be deduplication. But when we say that, no, we want all these records to be there, we want them to complete the story for us, we want to build a customer 360 or a supplier 360. That is where we use the term entity resolution or identity resolution. So I would say in technical terms, probably the treatment is the same. But in terms of the consumption and the application, deduplication is actually an application of identity or entity resolution.
0: Yeah, interesting. So the reason I'm asking about this duplicate detection, because when I first got to know this problem, this was the name of this problem, duplicate detection. It was a competition on Kaggle from one of the online classified websites. So it's called Avito and they run a competition on Kaggle. So the problem they had was uh, So if you want to buy or to sell your phone, you go to a website, online classifieds website, like OiliX, right? And then you just uh, take a picture of your phone, put some title and then sell it on the platform, right? And then if you really want to sell your phone, and then maybe you're not getting a lot of replies. What you can do is you can upload it multiple times, right? So then it creates duplicates. So the item, the phone is the same one, but then you have multiple listings on the platform. And they wanted to fight this problem with machine learning, so they created a competition. And in this competition, the task was, given a pair of listings, you needed to detect if this pair is a duplicate or not. And this, I took part in this problem, and actually, this problem haunted me till uh, even today, because I, I took part in that competition, then another company contacted me because they had a similar problem and then at Alex, I also needed to build a system like that. But yeah, I actually didn't think of this as identity resolution or entity resolution. For me, it was always like duplicate detection. But I never thought of taking this knowledge or expertise that I built over time by solving these problems and somehow extracting this and putting this into a product, like basically what you did. So I'm just wondering how it happened to you that you realized, okay, this is something big. I'm working on the same problem over and over again. I need to take all this knowledge that I have and put it into an open source tool and then start a company for working on this tool. How did it happen to you? So
1: I would say part of the journey was definitely planned in terms of me choosing to work on the problem. I mean, this problem hit me as part of a uh, you know consulting project that we were doing, where we were doing a data lake and we had customer data coming from three different databases. And we had to say that, what is the lifetime value? What is the likelihood of churn? of a particular customer, but for that, we had to have that solid identity um, piece built in. So that was the first time I encountered it. And then like very soon again, I hit this problem in in a completely different scenario, which was enrichment of data coming from an external source and feeding your internal uh, customer data with external crunch based data. So it was the same flavor of the problem. And uh, I saw various use cases actually happening. So that was the reason that I felt confident that if we solve it in a way that is generic, we will be able to attack a lot more use cases, duplicate detection being one. And Zing is now applied our products on, you know, Supplier 360, Customer 360, and all of them leading to different other kinds of use cases, uh, like grants, like donors, patients, so I was just lucky to, you know, kind of see it in different scenarios for me to say that this is a problem worth solving in a way which is generic. It was tough to honestly solve it in a generic way. But luckily, I kind of kept working at it. I think it was just persistence and uh, it just yeah a lot of hard, hard work, I would say, uh, that got me uh,
0: Yeah, interesting. Yeah, in my case, actually, all these three times that I worked on this, the solution was quite similar. So I think, uh, like in general, if you take, well, uh, it was in sort of classified domain anyways, I guess that's why. But for you, you described pretty different use cases, but still the solution was the same. And while you were talking about this, I remembered another term called entity matching. Is it similar to entity resolution too?
1: Yeah, it is. Uh, It is similar to entity resolution. So I think these are broad terms. I would say that, you know, entity resolution itself has so many duplicates. (laughs) You call it record linkage. You call it entity matching in some cases. Uh, Record linkage,
0: yeah, indeed. (laughs) Yeah,
1: record linkage is there. Uh, I think there are like at least five or 10 terms, uh, different terms that we talk about it. There's entity disambiguation more in terms of Mm -hmm. NLP. Entity matching, I think, is more in terms of uh, matching unstructured to structured. But yes, they're all flavors of, I think, the same problem. Eventually, I think we'd like to solve many more of these kind of problems. Mm-hmm.
0: So we talked about the problem, more or less. So like we we have data coming from different sources. We want to, what's the right, what, reconcile it or join it. Or we have duplicates uh, because uh, our users generated duplicates. So we want to detect these duplicates. Or there are other use cases you mentioned, like patient-donor matching and things like this. So this is the problem, but how do we actually solve it? Is there a framework that all of these problems follow that you also implemented in Zinc? So how does it work?
1: Yeah, so I was fortunate to see this problem happening in different scenarios and different entities. I uh, wanted to create a system which would be able to actually just absolutely work with any kind of data. We didn't want to have a system which would just work on, you know, one specific, Specific. I mean, if you, I think if you solve for person, that itself is a big enough market or usage. But if you solve it for even more entities, I think it becomes more powerful. So that was the design goal that we set out with. Uh, the s- second design goal was scale. So one is being able to handle different kinds of entities. Second is really, how do you scale this problem? Which I think is the, at the heart of it, one of the toughest challenges that entity resolution kind of suffers through. Uh, the reason is that, if you don't know what to compare, so then you have to compare every record with every other record. And that completely blows up. If you have 10,000 records, you're comparing 10,000 against 9,999, every single record against every other record. And the moment you increase the size of your data 10 times, the number of comparisons is going to go 100 times. And at you know a few million records, it absolutely blows up. So that's one of the fundamental challenges with identity. or. So these were, you know, those those goals in terms of solving this problem. So machine learning kind of became like an automatic, you know, way to do that. Because if we train on the data that the user gives, we can actually get it to run on absolutely any kind of entity. ML, although is not really associated with scale, but in Zing's case, we learn how to distribute and how to really... Very smart indexing or blocking, so that the comparison of every record with every other record doesn't happen. So let's say you have you know ten thousand records. Zing, based on the training data that is provided, and that Zing helps you create the training data. Zing would really break those ten thousand records into maybe buckets of hundred each, or one fifty, or larger or smaller sizes based on a combination of fields, and that is very powerful because then you know you're not doing all those comparisons it can be very fast and uh, what we're seeing is like when we released it we we tested with like 15 million records was the maximum we tested it and our users are able to kind of test it uh, running it at 80 million records is the last i heard without absolutely no help from us which is something i'm very proud of that it's scaling very well so all this is actually completely baked into the product if you download very simple just configure what fields you want the matching to run on and it can be any entity no need to define any rules or algorithms you know it's absolutely you just need to understand what should be a match in your case what do you define what's your business rule for a match don't bother about scale don't bother about rule definition don't bother if a matches with b and b matches with c a and c should actually also match so all that internally is Completely baked inside uh, the tool, and that's the open source thing for you.
0: Maybe can you talk about a bit about the implementation details? I know last time we spoke, you showed command line interface application, and then internally it was using Spark for computing all these things. Has it changed and what do you use to actually run it?
1: Okay, so yeah, a lot has changed since uh, last year. I'll get there, uh, I think, at the end of my answer. So fundamentally, at the heart of it, uh, Zing is a machine learning-based identity resolution. Now, to do machine learning models, we need training data. And users would not have training data, you know, sitting around in their offices or their laptops. So the, the command line utility that I showed you last time was a way in which this training data also can be generated through Zing. We configure what fields we want Zing to look at in terms of matching and Zing shows very selectively a few pairs for the user to say whether they're matches or non-matches. Around 40, 50 pairs are good enough to train a model of, you know, running to millions of records. So Zing shows you some pairs, you label, Zing goes back and defines its models and you label a few more. In a few iterations, you get a fairly trained, accurate model that can scale. Internally, uh, we use a combination of inbuilt machine learning, classification, graph processing. Uh, We've been using Spark for distribution, but we're also building out a Snowflake uh, native implementation for some of our users who are users of Snowflake but have not been on Spark. So the compute would be pushed on uh, Snowflake. We, We connect with absolutely everything that has a Spark connector. So, BigQuery, RDBMS, flat files, flat files in Parkey, in, uh, in Avro, in JSON, XML, or text files, uh, uh, name it. And in terms of uh, the interface, we are kind of building out the UI as well uh, for data stewardship and other functions. But we've also released a Python interface so that people can, instead of doing a command line JSON interface, they can use SYNC as part of their data pipelines.
0: So I guess uh, the command line interface didn't appeal to everyone, right?
1: It did appeal to everyone. So I wouldn't say that the, it was just lack of appeal. It's more about usability. So I mm-hmm. think uh, the, the way we look at Zing is it's not always just market capture, uh, you know, building the tool in terms of just market capture, it's also what is the best way we think that the user would like to access it? Uh, I mean, our Snowflake customers are right now running, you know, those Spark clusters. But is there a better, leaner architecture for them so that they are not worried about, you know, two separate infrastructure? That's the prompt, uh, is what I would say. Again, with Python, it was the same thing. And I think with Python, the power for Zing really increases because now we have the option of, you know, integrating with uh, Databricks notebooks easily, with uh, uh, tools like dbt which is where a lot of action is happening for us honestly
0: so you were working as a consultant you were running your own consultancy and then you saw that many of your clients had this problem and then you realized okay now i just want to sit down and solve this problem so did you just took some time of your main work and then just i don't know water a lot of coffee and started coding all the spark <laughs> drops. How did it happen?
1: Lots and lots of sleepless nights, honestly. <laughs> so a uh, some, some bits and parts of uh, Zinc had already been created as part of my consulting, but they were uh, kind of custom. So yes, I stopped consulting. I said, I can't do everything. I need to focus. And uh, I definitely have to take the plunge. So I... Absolutely shut myself down from all communication, heads down, getting stuff done. And that's how the open source came out.
0: So how long did it take you to actually implement the first proof of concept?
1: So Zing has been long in the making. It's taken me at least an year and more to build out uh, what we released last year and Honestly, I spent a lot of time tuning. I, like, I think all of that, you know, one, one and a half years, I must have spent at least six months just tuning the algorithms. It was crazy. It was even tough getting, you know, uh, test data to run, to use, to run Zing and to test it out. But I wanted to call it like a scalable product. Now, I couldn't do it unless, you know, I tested it at scale. So, uh, yeah, it, it took a lot of time. It, mm-hmm. And I think it's well worth it.
0: Mm-hmm. So you were running the catsup, let then at some point you stopped and it took approximately one year to release the first open version of Zinc, right? That's amazing. At
1: least one. <laughs>
0: at least one. One and a half?
1: Yeah, I think one and a half would be better. close. Okay, so you
0: weren't working with any clients during this time?
1: No, absolutely
0: not. Wow, that's, that, that's amazing. Why did you decide to actually do this in open source? Like after spending one year and a half Instead of, you know, doing it closed source and proprietary, you decided to do everything in Dolphin. Why did you make this decision?
1: So one is that, you know, I had personally been consuming. My data consultancy was built around open source tools, and I wanted a way to be able to give back. That was a driver for me. It was personally important for me. And I also wanted to establish that community, that feeling of people being able to just use it. Like the joy I had had in using so many other products, I wanted to kind of give that back. But just beyond that, beyond those personal reasons, but also business decisions, uh, I feel that Zing as a technology is something that a lot of companies large and small need. Some flavors of something like Zing, like identity resolution, are baked into in some ways, not as powerful, but are baked into products like CDPs and NDMs. What is that? Master data management systems and customer data platforms. Uh, to some extent, not as powerful and as full blown as what we are doing. But I feel that there are a lot, and these tools are very expensive. I mean, they easily run into six figure plus into multi million annual kind of licenses. I feel open sourcing can really, you know, get to a lot more companies than a closed source version, which needs sales, which needs a different kind of distribution. It also has helped us find a lot more use cases compared to, you know, what I could maybe knock at people's door and have them to look at the product and get them to use it. So I feel in terms of adoption, in terms of business, in terms of market, in terms of discoverability of use cases. Uh, especially if you are a team which is not really based in the heart of you know where all most of the tech is happening, like Silicon Valley, I think it's a far better decision mm-hmm. for a company like ours.
0: Were you afraid that somebody would just take all your code and rename the repo and say, "Okay, it's not a zinc, but a uh, Think," <laughs> and say, "Okay, <laughs> yeah, this is our new product."
1: Yeah. I was worried about that. I have to be honest. I was worried about so much of my hard work.
0: One and a half years, right?
1: Yeah, it was a long uh, labor of love, (laughs) as I call it. I was afraid of the IP uh, being free, to be honest. But at the same time, I was also very upbeat about the potential. And, uh, you know, you can control something, but then when you open it up, you realize there's so much more to, to what it is. And that thesis has worked in our favor. I think the kind of uh, welcome we've got from the community, from the leaders, from the practitioners is far beyond what I had ever expected. In terms of IP, so ours is like an AGPL license, which is not a classic license that somebody can just bake into their product. I mean, you can do whatever. If you're a company, you can use it internally. And uh, if you're a solution provider, you can use it and give a solution around that. But you can't bake Zinc into an existing product. For that, you need a different license unless you open source everything. So yeah, that's one thing that kind of, I think is a protection layer that we have. also at the same time, I think there's so much knowledge and so much code, uh, complex code, honestly, I would love people to contribute even fork it and, you know, (laughs) take it further, (laughs) that would be great also
0: yeah, speaking of licenses, for me, this is the most difficult part of open source. There are so many different licenses. And what you mentioned, GPL license, I know that there are Apache licenses which are pretty permissive, right? So let's say I have a some proprietary code base, I have a closed source solution, and then I can just take this Apache license project and then start using it and make money. And then I think MIT license is similar to that, but GPL is different, right? With GPL. I cannot just take a project and start using it and you know without open sourcing my entire code base. Is this right?
1: Uh no. no? So the AGPL, the one that we use, is very permissive. Mm-hmm. It lets you use it internally. It lets you provide solutions to your customers. So if you're like I'm a like if I'm a solutions SI or I'm a solutions company, I can very well build out a solution and my client can install it and you know they can use it. Only if I distribute Zing as part of a product. It's only then that those permissions kick in, which isn't any of the users. It doesn't really matter to anybody Mm -hmm. in terms of usage. So I think Apache and MIT is permissive to the the extent that you can even build out a SaaS using the open source and absolutely fork it and use it. With AGPL, providing a network service with something like zing as part of your product service is not possible that's the mm-hmm. only difference but for an end user it really doesn't there's absolutely no difference mm-hmm.
0: so if a cloud provider decides to offer zing as a service they will not be able to do like i know that there's one provider who decided to offer Uh, Elasticsearch as a service, and then they ended up renaming the whole thing, right, and call it OpenSearch. So something like that is not possible with Zinc, right, because the license does not permit doing that.
1: I think so, yes. That's my understanding of the the license.
0: Did you need to hire a lawyer to actually make this decision?
1: No. How did you make this decision? I just did my research and I talked to a few other people who had been doing open source. Honestly, the license is not the biggest part of open source. I think it's the philosophy. The IP is in the code. It's all out there. It's not just a matter of what classes we've written. It's, it's the algorithms which are there and saying, which, which are valuable. So I wouldn't worry that much about the license. I would have worried more about all that discovery or innovation uh, being open source, but I think it's a cool new way to reach a lot of lot more people and to help a lot more people so i, I think it's well worth it
0: mm-hmm. and when i asked you how exactly you started zinc and uh, you said that uh, you took some time like one year and a half to release the first public version but you also said we so i'm wondering were you doing this alone or somebody was working with you on the first version
1: so on the first version, I had uh, done it mostly by myself, and just towards the fag end, I honestly needed help. <laughs> so I hired uh, a consultant to help me towards the fag end.
0: So I guess uh, before that, so mostly your responsibilities were coding. Then I don't know product market fit, finding this product market fit, also tuning. You said you said you spent a lot of time tuning the algorithm. What do you do now? How is it different from? you doing this uh, for uh, one year and a half coming up with the initial version and uh, what you're doing now what do you do
1: so one is definitely i mean i think the coding the product a lot of new features do we want to do a tighter integration with data how do we really do their apis and so it's not just zing alone but zing in the ecosystem which takes up a lot more of my time compared to just zing alone and you know this product and this feature this is also now how do we tie in with you know particular technologies and make a whole solution. So that is one. Second is a lot of time goes learning about different users and their experiences and what is their feedback. How are they using Zing? Being active on the community and you know helping people out, talking to people, evangelizing Zing, uh, writing content, and uh, getting the word out on Zing. Hiring, <laughs> which is something that I spend a lot of time on. And so it's. I think I would say that uh, from a pure dev role, it's more of a company-building CEO, CTO role, uh, founder role, uh, which is a generalist of various kinds of activities that needs to be done, even taxation or incorporation or funding.
0: So what's your title now? Are you a CEO or CTO or
1: what? (laughs) I'm a do-whatever-it-takes person.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But what, what do you write in LinkedIn? Is it a founder?
1: I say founder. Yeah. Some
0: okay. places I say CEO. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> CEO sounds cooler, probably.
1: Yeah. In some places, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: But I guess CEO to me, it implies that this is not a technical role. So this person who calls themselves CEO, they are not coding anymore, which is not always the case, but, uh, you know, I guess this is like a, as a rule of thumb, it's usually correct, but you still code, right? You still create code.
1: Yeah I, I, yeah, I write code, yes, definitely, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. How large is your team now?
1: So we have four people right now, we are very actively hiring. Four people. And we also have help on, yeah, we have some consultants who are helping us with content and mm-hmm. some of the marketing stuff.
0: And How did you decide on the first hire? So it was you and then a freelancer for some time, but how did you decide who exactly you needed to hire as a first full-time employee of Zinc?
1: So I evaluated exactly in what bucket my maximum time was being spent and whether that activity was worth a full-time role, a good enough role for somebody to be able to do and enjoy and also something that I could kind of hand over to somebody, right? So that's the way I look at it. Like I I look at my calendar and this is how I'm spending most of my time what is the best way to free up my cycles and then what is the demand that is coming in from outside uh, who are the best people who can do it because obviously i'm not an expert at everything so those are the two parameters by which i look at whom we whom we should hire next
0: who did you hire eventually as the first employee
1: it's actually uh yeah a developer
0: developer like okay yeah. so you realize that you spent a lot of time developing and uh so you went through this exercise that you just described. And who else do you have on the team? So the other two people?
1: Actually, right now it's all uh, development. Okay. We have one person who is marketing, product marketing and writing content. And again, we are looking at more developers because at the heart of it, Zing is Zing is a technical product. It needs uh, a lot of engineering. So we are hiring for engineering.
0: So what is your biggest challenge right now?
1: So what's my biggest challenge right now? My biggest, I would say, challenge is definitely hiring. It's a time-consuming, I would say, process in terms of uh, finding the right fit. Uh, You have to be very conscious of the other person's career aspirations. I mean, basically, you are kind of, you know, getting somebody to bet on you, right? So I would say uh, that's a responsibility in itself. And at the same time, you also have to evaluate those skills and and ensure that that person would be able to deliver in whatever environment, uh, team environment that we have created. So those are things that definitely are uh, challenging that way.
0: Are you fully remote, or how how do you work?
1: We are fully remote, uh, but all of our hires are currently in India. In terms of Indian salaries, I think that's that's working out well for us. We do have some interesting people who've reached out from you know different geographies and uh, i think as we grow we'll probably hire internationally as well Okay.
0: i realized we have quite a few questions from the audience so i'll start with the first one from us so how can team avoid dealing with entity identity resolution challenges from the start is it the proper database design or would it be enough if we design our databases in the right way from the start to actually solve this challenge or It's not sufficient.
1: So designing proper data governance or ensuring that you have the right way to capture the data at all points and to reconcile it with existing data is a good first step. But I would say that itself that should be done, but that would not solve the problem. The problem would still persist because your marketing team would use multiple tools. Your sales team would use different tools. Your procurement is going to use different tools. As the company grows, it will not be as simplistic as, you know, just capturing data from one single form and updating it in your database. You're bound to have different channels of uh, customer acquisition, of lead generation, of customer interaction, support, uh, billing, ticketing, just for customers. same for, you know, vendors, et cetera. So the problem, uh, by and large, Definitely at the, you know, at the entry level, we need to be conscious of of it, but the problem would still happen. Mm
0: -hmm. So it's just, you can control the extent of this problem, but you cannot just completely avoid it, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. Can't completely avoid it.
0: And uh, how is identity resolution different from using basic joins and data fusions? I don't know what data fusion is. I assume some sort of fuzzy maybe join or something like this. I know that there are tools like this one from Microsoft, which is called Integration Service, I think. So what they have is like, you can just visually drag and drop to design your data pipeline, your ETL, and then uh, you can do a usual join, right? But there is also a fuzzy join or fuzzy lookup where a record doesn't match exactly, but maybe like it looks for typos, it accounts for other irregularities in your data. I assume it is, maybe I'm not right.
1: So to answer that question, uh, and with whatever our limited understanding of uh, data fusion, what I would say is that if the data is simple enough for you to be able to just join on, you know, like uh, identify like an email that you trust, which is consistent or an SSN ID or a passport or whatever number that you have, and you know that's consistently populated across all your sources, I think that's, that's a great approach. If it works for you, there's nothing like it. Unfortunately, in most of the cases that we see, the data is, is not like that. Real-world data is not like that. Like even when we put in, you know, our identifiers, we have multiple identifiers, our driving license, our SSN, our passport, and even for KYC scenarios, we would put in different IDs. So uh, real-world data generally tends to have a lot more variations compared to a simple email join or a Mm -hmm. simple uh, name, first name, last name. So if it works, The data can be trusted or probably there is already a curation step and, you know, your data is like that. Those joints would definitely work. Otherwise, you have to think beyond how do you define those rules? How do you manage the scale? How do you compare every every record with every other record? What do you choose as the threshold? So let's say you do a fuzzy, you know, all the databases have a fuzzy kind of thing. Even Elasticsearch has a fuzzy uh, lookup. But then really, how do you decide at what threshold do you want to consider that as a match? How many matches should you look at? I mean, those are, again, questions that need to be thought about.
0: While you were speaking, I remembered a funny case that happened to me recently. So I signed up for a webinar using my private email. So then I attended the webinar and then after the webinar, the company who was running the webinar contacted me on my work email saying hey thanks for attending the webinar and i thought okay they must be doing something i don't know smart or (laughs) (laughs) but they somehow figured out that uh, okay this person who signed up and this person who i don't know they know from somewhere is this the same person, right? And then wow. it's better to use work email right, for contacting. So I thought something is shady going on, but now I understand what might have happened there. So probably maybe they had a record of me, maybe I signed up for another webinar some time yeah. ago, right? And then they just combined this, linked these two records.
1: Yeah, identity resolution is everywhere. I think the moment you see it, you just can't stop noticing it. <laughs>
0: What was the uplift from switching from deterministic matching to probabilistic to machine learning?
1: So deterministic matching is a set of, you know, rules, which say that I'm sure these are the ones that I care about. And these are the ones I'm sure about, and this is what it is.
0: Like social security matches, right?
1: Yeah, but as I, I mentioned in my last answer, I mean, real world data is not like that, especially uh, customer data, unless you're in a heavily regulated industry, even the life sciences and healthcare companies, when they have to do the Sunshine Act and they have to report how much spend they have done on uh, healthcare providers, their sales uh, reps have been actually putting records of uh, purchases and spends on physicians. And even that data has to be reconciled. And it's a massive year-end, you know, Sunshine act- activity that happens in those companies. So it ends up that kind of an exercise and deterministic matching, as I said, right? If it works, if, it's, if the data supports it, uh, there's no need for probabilistic. But a lot of scenarios, probabilistic is what you need because there would be variations in the data.
0: So another question, what are the applications of identity and identity resolution in fraud detection.
1: In fraud detection, okay, yeah. So what happens in fraud detection is that you know people will uh, create different accounts with slightly different name and address information, and they would give different identifiers for their KYC. And when you want to track the flow of money, you actually you know would be actually counting them as separate individuals. But having that identities resolved actually gives a very clear picture of how those transactions are happening. And if you look at all the graph databases, I mean, that's one thing that, you know, they talk so much about because they are primarily used in all these fraud detection scenarios. And the first thing that they talk about is entity resolution. So if you look at all the Neo4j or Tiger Graph, and uh, so when you are establishing those networks, the identities established on those nodes is critical. That's where identity kind of plays a central role there.
0: Mm-hmm. I have another example, something I saw in my experience. So I was talking about the duplicate detection action of listings in mm-hmm. online classifieds. What sometimes can happen is imagine that uh, maybe you're renting a flat, right? So you have a flat, you have an apartment, and you want to rent it for somebody so they can move in and live there, right? What can happen is somebody can just take your listing all the pictures, all the information, change it slightly. Like for example, instead of Berlin, it could be or some other city, right? Then upload it to the website and then pretend that this is like a genuine listing. And then people would contact them. I want to see the, the flood. And what can happen next is they can write, oh, sorry, I'm not in the city now, but we have like a lot of people who also want to see the flat. We have a lot of people who want to rent the flood. If you give us advanced deposit of, I don't know, 100 euros, we will reserve this flat for you. Yeah. Right? And then yeah. actually, when I was looking for a flat, exactly this thing happened to me, like, I don't know, five or 10 times. And to be able to understand that this listing is actually a duplicate of another listing, then you can see, okay, like this is created from different accounts then cities are different. Okay, something is wrong here. Let's figure out what's happening there. So that's another example.
1: Yeah, that's a new one for me, but yes, I think it makes absolute sense. And we've also seen this in the case of e-commerce companies where you know sellers sometimes they get it uh, from you know one of these e-commerce companies, they would say that they they have a promotion on one of these phones and you are allowed to sell it at a particular discount, and sellers would pose as different buyers themselves and you know buy uh, in bulk and then sell it in retail. And uh, we had worked with an e-commerce company to <laughs> identify such sellers. So, yes, uh, various kinds of fraud. uh, People are very, I think, creative about (laughs)
0: fraud. And I know that for fraud detection cases, graph machine learning is quite useful. So, in your experience, do graph algorithms outperform classical machine learning models in entity resolution or no?
1: So, we do use uh, graph algorithms in our case. We do pairwise matching, and then we use uh, graphs to detect the network of uh, records which actually belong together. So we use that combination, but the output of Zinc is actually, if you look at it, it's actually a graph that you can consume. You can consume it as a table, but you can also consume it as a graph. And we say that we are like the fundamental building block of your fraud detection algorithm. So take this graph, which is your identity is resolved, lay over the transaction data, and then do your classical processing.
0: So what type of data can Zinc use? For example, if there is no common fields are present, how does the tool know that these are the same? How does it work under the hood in these cases?
1: Okay, so right now we don't have uh, column to column, you know, just figuring out which columns actually match to each other. That's something that we definitely want to build in the longer run. We. For Zing to work, you have to specify really what column maps to another column. It could be spelled differently, like F name or first name, but there has to be some notion of, you know, fields that are common in some way for it to figure it out. If What we see sometimes is that, you know, people in some cases, they will have uh, three address columns in one data set and a full concatenated address in the other. And they would mostly concatenate the address in the first data set and then match it with the other. But that kind of mapping is something that we don't figure out right now. Uh, The user has to specify. But it's not very complex to kind of specify. It's a very simple config.
0: So there is a way in your config you can say, okay, like this field and this field are related. So go figure out if the data there is the same. Yes. Okay. Another interesting question is about some success stories of implementing identity resolution in products. Maybe I can uh, start with uh, fraud detection. Sure, yeah. So we didn't use zinc for that, at Felix. But there is a nice article at the Tech blog of Felix. It's tech.olx.com, where we talk about detecting fraudulent links of people who fraud, defraud people. So that's uh, a good success story. We were able to identify that there is a cluster of people who are actually the same person or the same entity, and just ban all of them. Right? So that's one of the success stories, but I'm sure you have uh, a lot more.
1: Yeah, I have a lot uh, of very good success stories. Um, I can go on and on about them. but I will pick up uh, one, which is really a very public good uh, story, which is not your usual enterprise data this thing, but it's an open data case study where uh, the North Carolina state has come up with open data on their campaigns. and you know who is donating? How much? So, who are the donors? Who are the recipients? And what is the flow between recipients and donors? And this data has been captured historically, and it's also people uh, donate through online channels. So, there has been digitization of those records, uh, the historical and the existing records. But, a particular, do- all the donors are actually, they don't have identities, right? The recipients also don't have identities. I mean, the same recipient has been entered multiple times by multiple donors in different ways. And similarly for the donors, there's a consulting company, a non-profit and uh, the state who have used Zing to establish really how much spent donors are doing on recipients. And there's a case study which has also been published. And they have seen that, you know, what kind of clusters they have been able to get and do the spend analysis for every donor. So it's very easy to, you know, kind of figure out affiliations, that data is all open. It's a very nice way to educate the voter. On really what's happening in their constituency. And it's something I'm super happy about. Yeah,
0: interesting story. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, if you, and these uh, again are questions that we prepared. So this is not from the audience. I'm pretty curious. So if you had to do this over again, so let's say you're now working at the consultancy company and you think you want to solve this problem, what would you do differently now?
1: one thing i would do differently is be on the lookout for a co-founder the day i decide to do it -hmm. it's honestly a lot of work to do it all alone to do all the funding be part of all the conversations be all over right even now i'm actually very open to you know hiring and having somebody on board in that capacity or more people on the founding team that way so i think that is definitely something That I would have been more open to. I just kind of thought that you know this is a problem I need to solve it. I'm a developer. Let me just get down and I forgot how much time I spent there. So I would do that differently. But yes, uh, having said that, a co-founder match is you know something you have to be very very comfortable with. So I would not. I'm not sure whether it would have happened or it would happen. So no regrets there. But yes, I would have been definitely more receptive and thoughtful about that. Secondly, I think I could have open sourced it a bit earlier than I did. I was too busy polishing things. I was too busy getting it to perfect. I could have done it a bit, a bit earlier. So it's, I think, uh, it's, again, not a regret, but yes, looking back, those are two things I could have done differently.
0: Yeah, indeed. And spending a half a year on tuning is impressive, but probably <laughs> you, you indeed could have done this earlier. Right? Yes, but I could. But the demo I saw, the demo you did with Data Talks Club was really amazing. So I saw that you put a lot of effort there. So it was polished, it was really, really good.
1: Thanks.
0: So let's say I have a similar problem or not problem, idea, right? Um, similar in the sense that I see that there is a problem and they want to make a product out of this, an open source product. How would you recommend me to proceed? So first thing you said, like find a co-founder, I guess would be a recommendation anything else I should do to actually check if I should lock myself in a room for a year and a half before showing something or there is something I should do before that.
1: So I think, uh, you know, experiencing the problem in different scenarios, like if you are a data person and you see it multiple times happening as, as being a professional, I think that's a very strong sign. I, you should definitely watch that sign and figure out if there is some potential to that problem. I mean, yeah, having more people interested in solving that would be a great step. Also, you could talk to a few people and figure out, uh, you know, if they would be interested in using it. So when we ask for feedback, right, everybody says, hey, go for it. And, you know, why don't you do it? Uh, That's nice. But maybe having very pointed questions on really, would you use it? Do you think you would pay for it? If you would pay for it, really, how much do you think you would pay for it? would be nice questions. I wouldn't say they should be absolute blockers, but they would prepare you to kind of think ahead and say whether you really want to do it. I think it's more about building that inner conviction of whether you are so interested in solving this problem and it's going to be a tough road, right? Building a product, unless it's like a shortish thing, right? You do over a weekend and then you release and then overnight becomes a success, which generally is not the case. Is a lot of hard work and then you have to really say or feel that this is something that you want to solve that much and so that inner conviction and then really how would you distribute it who are the people you think you would be able to easily reach out to are they in your network are they people who can count on for trying out your product where would your early users be even when you do open source i mean there are various distribution places right you can go to Slack communities, Discord, Twitter. Would you do content? What kind of content? So distribution also has to, I think, go hand in hand with building the product. But absolutely, build a smallish thing, test it out, you will always learn. I see no harm in building things. It's absolutely uh, the way to go.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and it's fun too. Yeah, it's fun. Last question. So one of the listeners, Johanna, suggested that we should ask every guest some recommendation, like a book recommendation, for example. So I was wondering if you could recommend any book or some other resource to the listeners?
1: Absolutely. I, uh, we completed one year at Zing, and I treated myself to a book that I'd been meaning to read since a long time. It's called Creative Selection. And it talks about Apple's design process during the time of Steve Jobs, especially while building the, the iPhone. And I absolutely love the book for the way uh, such a large company at that time was still operating as a startup, doing a lot of iterative you know, development, very lean processes, but very strong focus on outcomes, on polishing the product, on focus on usability and quality, which we, which we know while we use Apple products. But uh, really what goes inside it was, again, something that I really enjoyed reading. So I hope people will enjoy reading it too.
0: I haven't heard about this book. so I have a few credits on Audible. I think i use for listening to audiobooks. So look it up. Okay. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for sharing your experience and expertise with us. You had an interesting journey. And thanks for sharing it with us. Enjoy the rest of your day.
1: Yeah, thank you, Alexi, for having me. Uh, again, a pleasure always interacting with you. We'll again probably catch up uh, <laughs> offline yeah. as well as maybe some, do some channel uh, thing like this. And thank you all for your very nice questions and feel free to you know DM me or message me if there's something I can help you with. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Maybe we should do another demo because it's been a year or something yeah. like this, right?
1: Yeah, we can do that. <laughs>
0: okay, talk to you soon. Goodbye.
1: Right, thank you. Bye bye.